welcome to another edition of Digging Deeper with Brian Hale. Brought to you by Hale Multimedia, website and mobile app development for over 25 years. That's HaleMultimedia.com. Now listen in and join me online at DiggingDeeper.us. It's time for that COVID-19, a second opinion. U.S. Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin held a panel discussion on COVID-19 called a second opinion. A group of world-renowned doctors and medical experts provided a different perspective on the global pandemic response, the current state of knowledge of early and hospital treatment, vaccine efficacy and safety, what went right, what went wrong, what should we be doing now, and what needs to be addressed long term. We have a series of short clips here from the professionals in attendance, and many of those you may have heard of, Dr. Senator Ron Johnson, Dr. Paul Merrick, Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Mary Bowden, Dr. Ryan Cole, Dr. Aaron Cariardi, several different nurses, of course, Attorney Thomas Rents, Dr. Harvey Risch, Dr. Peter McCullough, and Dr. Robert Malone. They've all dinged in or chimed in on this issue. Here is Dr. Paul Merrick on the use of remdesivir in hospitals. If you look at the four independent studies, including the large study by the WHO, it shows the opposite effect. Remdesivir increases the risk of death. Let me say that again. Remdesivir increases the risk of death by 3%. It increases your chances of renal failure by 20%. This is a toxic drug. But just to make the situation even more preposterous, the federal government will give hospitals a 20% bonus on the entire hospital bill if they prescribe remdesivir to Medicare patients. The federal government is incentivizing hospitals to prescribe a medication which is toxic. So, it should be noted that remdesivir costs about $3,000 a course. Dr. Corey spoke about ivermectin. Ivermectin reduces the risk of death by about 50%. It costs the WHO two cents. Two cents. So, as regards dexamethasone, this is the wrong drug in the wrong dose for the wrong duration of time. Yet every clinician in this country will absurdly use this homeopathic dose of dexamethasone. Why? Because the NIH tells them to do this. So what the NIH and other agencies have ignored are multiple FDA-approved drugs. These are FDA-approved drugs. These are not experimental drugs, which are cost-effective and safe and have unequivocally, unequivocally been shown to reduce the death of patients in the ICU and in hospital. 
Dr. Pierre Corey goes through numerous examples from around the world where early treatment is working, including a massive new study out of Brazil. Brazilian city of Itajai. This is a paper that was published in the last two weeks. It is one of the most remarkable studies in the history of medicine because it included complete data on 160,000 people in the city of Itajai, where that health ministry in June of 2020 offered its entire citizens' inhabitants the opportunity to take ivermectin as a preventative. 113,000 people decided to, and something around 50,000 did not. And when you compared the two groups, even though the group that elected to take it was sicker, older, more overweight, much more disease, they got the disease 50% less, they went to the hospital 68% less, and they died 70% less often. It is a truly remarkable study using immense amounts of, of data. La Pampas, Argentina, same thing. Early test and treat program showing that the need for ICU or death fell by 50 and 60%. Peru did mass distributions long ago in 2020 until they stopped doing it because their, the administration changed, but they showed in all of the reasons where they did mass distributions, mortality rates and case counts fell. It is a highly effective medicine. Even in Japan, even in Japan, the president of the Tokyo Medical Association announced to all doctors during a summer surge that they should use ivermectin in the treatment. Within weeks, the hospitalization rates reported out of Japan were lower than at any other time in the pandemic. That medication works. And when you deployed an early test and treat strategy, you can cure and solve this pandemic. That information is being buried. Why is that happening, you might ask? I'm gonna say that what I've just reported today, that information is being suppressed across most of the world. United States health agency structures and policies created over the last 50 years have tightly intertwined the pharmaceutical industry with public health institutions, resulting in repeated policies placing pharmaceutical industry interest ahead of, of the welfare of U.S. citizens. Dr. Mary Bowden shares her concerns about the current state of our hospital protocols. Uh, now it's people are terrified to go to the hospital. So I'm, I've become the emergency room. <laughs> I'm giving high-dose IV steroids. I'm giving, you know, 25 grams of IV vitamin C. But I am keeping people out of the hospital, and I've kept over 2,000 people out of the hospital. And if you look at current statistics, 20 of those people should be dead, and they're not. <laughs> so... Um, I, I see a lot of high-risk patients. I, you know, I don't know if you saw my press conference, but I had um, you know, a woman in her late 60s, diabetic, not taking her medications, came to me with an oxygen saturation of 82%. And she came to my clinic three days in a row. She got IV steroids. I gave her 80 milligrams of solumedrol based on the FLCC protocol. Thank you. Uh, I gave her two grams of vitamin C. I gave her a slew of medications. I, I threw the kitchen sink at her because she refused to go to the hospital. And in prior times, I would say, you, you need to go to the hospital, but she refused. Um, but now she's alive and doing wonderfully. And, you know, there's, it's just sickening how many patients did not receive that kind of care. And the turning point for me when I really got angry was uh, a patient that her wife reached out to me. He's trapped in the ICU, a father of six, sheriff's deputy, 
refuse to give anything, but you know, these, these hospitals give them low-dose steroids. They give them six milligrams of dexamethasone, you know, three times a day. A lot of these hospitals won't even give breathing treatments. It's ridiculous. They won't give them the vitamins. I mean, and so basically she called me in desperation and I testified. She sued the hospital to try to get her husband the medications he needed. I testified, we won. The hospital refused to grant me privileges, even though I have a spotless record. And I was furious. <laughs> That's when it all changed for me, and I became, you know, I became thrust into the public because of Methodist Hospital. But um, it's just, you know, we, I've seen a lot, and I'm angry, and I'm exhausted. I mean, I have one hospital I can send patients to that I feel safe to. I have one, one doctor, Dr. Joe Verone, who I trust that I'll send my patients to out of an enormous city, and I'm exhausted. I can't find any doctors to help me. Um, it's, it's a huge problem. Dr. Ryan Cole on why not all antibodies are created equal. And this is basic immunology. If you get a shot in your arm, you don't have a tendency to, you, everybody hears about antibodies, but there's a special kind in your tears, your nose, your mouth called secretory IgA. It's little mops in your tears. If you've had a natural infection, you have high levels of secretory IgA, these little mops in your mucosal membranes, and that mops up virus quickly. The virus, from, or, I'm sorry, the, the response from the vaccine, you don't get this physiologically. So we are seeing actually the vaccinated carry a high volume of virus because they don't have this secretory IgA. So this false construct from our federal agencies that this is a pandemic and the unvaccinated are spreading is a pathophysiologic lie. The vaccinated are carrying high volumes in their nose, their tears, their mouth of virus because the vaccine does not neutralize in that location of the body where the virus comes in. So this is very important. This is why mandates are absolutely now moot, irrelevant, and out the window, and need to go away worldwide like most of the world has done already. This is the funny uncle. This is not SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. This is COVID-22, meh. Dr. Cariardi explains why doctors are hesitant to write mask or vaccine exemptions. Went out to all physicians from the medical board saying, any physician in California who writes an inappropriate exemption for masks or other COVID-related measures will have his medical license subjected to investigation and disciplinary action. So for a physician, just to help you to understand, this kind of uh, threat hanging over your head is worse than the threat of getting fired. If I get fired from a particular healthcare organization, I can go to another healthcare organization or go start a private practice. If I lose my medical license, I cannot practice medicine, okay? That's how serious this is. The letter never defined what might constitute an appropriate or inappropriate mask mandate. So I have no idea if I write a mandate for a kid with a severe anxiety disorder that's worsened by the wearing of a mask, is that, is that going to subject my medical license to disciplinary action? Uh, physicians in California interpreted the phrase and other COVID-related re measures to include vaccines, which had already been uh, rolled out at that point. It has become de facto impossible 
to get a medical exemption for a COVID vaccine in the state of California. No physician will write them, even when you have someone that has a contraindication listed on the CDC's list of contraindications to COVID vaccines. I have a patient, went to, uh, went to her rheumatologist, specialist in her uh, autoimmune condition. This specialist told this patient, I don't think you should get the COVID vaccines given your age, your low risk of COVID, and I think there's a good chance that these vaccines, based on the data that we have, could worsen your underlying medical condition. She turned to the same physician immediately afterwards and said, can you write me, therefore, a medical exemption? Uh, because I need one for work. There's a vaccine mandate at work. Same physician that just told her not to take the vaccine or recommended against it said, no, I'm sorry, I can't write you a medical exemption because I'm afraid I might lose my license. Are you but telling me that patients who have known life-threatening contraindications that's right. to receive a COVID-19 vaccine indeed are that's not right. being given exemptions? Attorney Thomas Rance reveals what multiple DOD whistleblowers have provided on the safety of the vaccines. These numbers are mind-blowing. Please tell me, uh, apparently one of the whistleblowers is brave enough to come forward and give a name or I would not have allowed you to come. To yes, talk Senator. So we've got three whistleblowers who have given me permission at this point to share their name. Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Teresa Long, DOMPH. Dr. Samuel Sigloff and Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Peter Chambers, DO and flight surgeon. All three have, have given me this data. I have declarations from all three. This data is under penalty. Uh, this is under penalty of perjury. We intend to submit this to the courts. Uh, we have substantial data showing that uh, we saw, for example, uh, miscarriages increased by 300 percent over the five-year average, almost. Uh, we saw almost 300% increase in cancer over the five-year average. Cancer is not being talked about except for by Dr. Ryan Cole. Thank you, doctor. Uh, we saw, this one's amazing, neurological. So f neurological issues which would affect our pilots. Over a 1,000% increase. A 1,000. Well, ten, ten times. That's ten times rate, and obviously that... 83,000 per year, to, I'm sorry, 82,000 per year to 863,000 in one year. Our soldiers are being experimented on, injured, and sometimes possibly killed. Dr. Corey, thank you so much for your stance on the corruption. That's precisely what it is. They know this. And, Senator, uh, when these doctors are attacked, not necessarily the people in this room, I'm give, not giving names, they call me. I'm the one dealing with the medical boards. I'm the one watching the witch hunts. I'm the one fighting them off, and I'm the one telling them where to go. I'm going to keep doing that. Senator, we also have, uh, let me give you this last thing, and then I'll shut up and uh, get out of your way. 9-28-2021, Project Salus weekly report. Project Salus is a defense department initiative where they report and contract, uh, they take all this data that doesn't exist, supposedly, and they give it to the CDC. They're watching these vaccines. On that date, and around that date, I have numerous instances where Fauci and that entire crew were saying, it's a crisis of unvaxxed. It's 99% unvaxxed in the hospital. In Project Salus, in the weekly report, the DOD document says specifically, 
71% of new cases are in the fully vaxxed, and 60% of hospitalizations are in the fully vaxxed. This is corruption at the highest level. We need investigations. The Secretary of Defense needs investigated. The CDC needs to be investigated. And thank you so much, Senator, for having the courage to stand against these special interests. So, now, Yale epidemiologist Dr. Harvey Risch describes the UK data on immune response post-vaccination. It means they're doing something that's damaging the immune response in a more general way. That was a quote from Dr. Risch. Listen in. Public Health UK has actually published a statement about this in their week 42 uh, weekly report that showed that people who've had COVID and then get vaccinated have lower levels of anti-nucleocapsid uh, antibodies. And this means, and since the vaccines don't address the nucleocapsid antigens, they only address the spike, it means that they're doing something that's damaging the immune response in a more general way than just what they do with the spike. And this is empirical data that Public Health UK has published. So we know that the, this is happening. It's not a theoretical issue about all of the niceties of, of laboratory biology and virology of things that could happen, it's a real thing that's been really observed by their testing. And Dr. Peter McCullough compares our U.S. hospitalization data to that from around the world. That the CDC and academic medical centers will say, and they will go to a home base, that they will say that the vaccines are associated with a reduction in hospitalization. And this will come up. The CDC in the last few days said there's five more papers showing the vaccines, even with Omicron, are associated with the reduction in hospitalization. But it's only in U.S. hospitals, not in South Africa, not right. in Germany, not in Denmark, not in the U.K., and not in Israel. Americans should be asking the question, why are the vaccines only working against hospitalization, but they don't work against binary occurrence of the respiratory illness or reduced spread? And they don't reduce mortality. But why do they only reduce hospitalization? And by the way, they reduce hospitalization in most studies in the United States by 85%. How does that happen? That is basically academic fraud. And the reason why it is is because these hospitalizations are not adjudicated. They're not telling us why the patients are hospitalized. And we've had multiple officials come out and tell us that 40 to 60% of people coming to the hospital who test positive for COVID are not there for COVID. Yeah. So we have a trumped-up set of numbers. And to make matters worse, our CDC has advised consistently that the unvaccinated get lots of testing and the vaccinated actually refrain from testing. So the combination of not adjudicating hospitalizations and this asymmetric testing is creating a fraudulent data uh, scheme in order to make the claim that the vaccinations are associated with reductions in hospitalizations when in fact they're not. And that's the reason why Israel is loaded with fully vaccinated people in the hospital with COVID-19 and so is Germany and so is the United Kingdom and elsewhere in the United States. Dr. Malone warns of the dangers of mass vaccination with leaky vaccines. He says if we continue to pursue universal vaccination, the high probability is that we will continue to see is the evolution of escape mutants that are increasingly infectious and may well become more pathogenic. Omicron, we are, we are truly blessed, as I said back before Christmas, that Omicron has such low risk for severe disease and death. 
However, it's got a warning sign, and it's what GERD has been warning about and what the FDA has acknowledged in the original documents allowing the emergency use authorization in which they told the pharmaceutical industry that they desired that the pharmaceutical industry would investigate the risks of antibody-dependent enhancement or vaccine-enhanced disease. What GERT has been warning us about, quite stridently, is if we continue to implement this universal vaccination policy rather than the position of the Great Barrington Declaration, which I've supported in multiple op-eds in the Washington Times, among others, if we continue to pursue this universal vaccination strategy in the face of the pandemic, particularly with Omicron now, a much more highly infectious, highly replication-competent virus, what we risk is the driving the virus through basic evolution to a state where it may be more pathogenic and more able to elude immune response. So in sum, I don't wish to scare We've had enough fear porn. But if we continue to pursue universal vaccination, the high probability is that what we will continue to see is the evolution of additional escape mutants that are increasingly infectious and may well become more pathogenic. This policy of, of forced universal vaccination is absolutely contrary to all of our understanding about basic viral evolution. We are clearly seeing the development of escape mutants that are resistant to the vaccine. Omicron is not only resistant to the vaccine, but its infectivity seems to be facilitated by the vaccine. And in my opinion, this must stop for the sake of the world. Former Houston Methodist nurse Jennifer Bridges gives her firsthand account of what she experienced before she was terminated. Yes, my name's Jennifer Bridges. Um, I'm, an, I'm, I'm still a nurse, but I was fired from Houston Methodist. I'm the one you might have seen all over the news. We were the first one mandated with a COVID shot. So I blew it up on the national media. We have a huge state and federal lawsuit because we didn't want to be guinea pigs. We saw for ourselves in the hospital people coming in with adverse reactions after getting the Pfizer shot. And the crazy thing is, is let me tell you a couple things about Methodist Hospital down in Houston, Texas. When they first started with COVID, I did that COVID unit on and off the whole time till they fired me in June, right? They started the first two months with hydroxychloroquine. They actually used it in the hospital. Then they cut it back real quick, switched it to remdesivir and all these other expensive drugs. And we're like, why? And we would ask these doctors. No one could give us a reason. They just said, well, the hospital policy changed. But they didn't know why. And you know, most of those doctors in that hospital would not even go in those COVID rooms there was maybe two that would. They would stand outside, make us dress up head to toe, and go in with an iPad. So the only form of communication those doctors would have at Houston Methodist with the COVID patients was through an iPad. So literally, we'd go in there, they'd be talking to them, never assess the lungs, never look at them, nothing, go to discharge them. I would come back out and be like, no, have you listened to them? They can't breathe. Like, the wheezing's horrible. They had no clue. They weren't even looking at that. And to address one, sorry, I'm like, <laughs> I got a little emotional back here. I've been there. I've done the whole shebang, right? Even I was the first one at Methodist that they asked 
to do window visits because when these COVID patients were dying, and they never did this with anybody else dying, family was not allowed to come in to say goodbye. They couldn't hold their hand. They were left alone in these rooms. I was asked, because I was one of the most compassionate nurses they had there, will you do these window visits? They would escort family into the cafeteria windows. I would go there sweating my butt off for almost an hour and a half, two hours, just to put the phone by that loved one's ear so they could say goodbye. I would stay in there as long as I could. And other nurses, they wouldn't want to do it. They'd be like, no, it gets too hot, or I don't have time for that. And the things you would hear were just insane to me. And I'm like, I don't care about, you know, what's going on with me. This is way more important. And I would stay in there with them, listening, you know, to these families say goodbye. They'd even be on the window with another cell phone and go like this so they could say goodbye. And, oh, yeah, I'll love to talk to you later. I have so much information for you. But I have, right before I got fired, and I tried the right way. I didn't go to the media at first. I actually had a meeting with my CEO and CNO at Methodist in Baytown, David Bernard and Becky Chalupa. They caught me going around with my little petition to say, you know, if people agreed with our stance, not to force us against our will. Somebody told them I was doing that. They called me into this meeting where they sat me down. They threatened me. They told me I had to stop. They could fire me over this because I was soliciting. And I told them, I said, well, what if I went to other hospitals? What do you think they would say? He looked me in the face and I said, and he said, I strongly advise you against that. And he even told me 100% compliance was more important than my individual autonomy as a nurse. And that is a huge, huge slap in the face. And then after I got so public, basically other doctors, whistleblowers were coming to me to share information. So I've seen text messages, I've seen emails where Methodist Hospital threaten their doctors. You cannot sign medical exemptions, you cannot talk about, you cannot report adverse reactions to these vaccines. And then if you do, and if somebody was actually brave enough to do that on writing, there were other people higher up to erase those. Those were not to be allowed on record. I have the proof, and I have the people that have shown me these things. By the way, I, I, can, I can confirm everything you're telling me. I've heard yes. countless times from other nurses. And I just want anybody listening, our health care system is, is, suffers because you're not in it anymore. And hundreds of people like you are no longer in it because they were fired by these vaccine mandates. Registered nurse Nicole Serotek shares what she saw on the front lines in New York City. Thank you, Senator, for giving me an uninterrupted opportunity to represent the harm that is coming to the patients in the American hospitals and the lack of early intervention. My name is Nicole Serotek. I'm a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse for over a decade. My specialty is critical care, trauma, and flight. Um, since the start of the COVID pandemic, I've actually been rebranded, I guess you can say, as a leading expert in early intervention strategies executed on a large mass scale using the FLCCC protocol, as well as um, ventilator, uh, COVID patient ventilator protective strategies to optimize uh, COVID patients on the ventilators. My story actually begins back in May of 2020. I was one of the original nurses that went to NYC to help with the COVID pandemic, because as we remembered, they needed nurses. And most importantly, they needed ventilators. Well, I was the whole package, a flight nurse that can manage ventilators. And when I arrived there, um, the gross negligence and the medical 
you know, malfeasance that happened in there and the complete medical mismanagement of these patients is what had led a, has led us to the situation that we're in right now. The pandemic and the hysteria that was created from poor public health measures and poor execution of appropriate early intervention strategies and the handicapping of medical professionals doing their job has led to where we are right now and into the crisis situation that we are in. I will use several key case studies that will represent larger uh, descriptive statistical information for what I'm going to speak of. But when I was in New York, and what continues to happen today is that many of them are not dying from COVID. Now, many people don't know about me is that I'm actually a master's prepared biochemist, and I have worked extensively with the HIV uh, virus tracking uh, genetic mutations. So I feel very comfortable going toe-to-toe -to -toe with some of these doctors here, although I am not a doctor, I'm just a nurse. But what we saw in these front lines, we knew what was happening. And when we asked for the ibuprofen, they said, no, it was contraindicated. When we asked, like, why aren't we giving them steroids? Oh, well, it's not. We're just following orders. Following orders has led to the sheer number of deaths that has occurred in these hospitals. I didn't see a single patient die of COVID. I've seen a substantial number of patients die of negligence and medical malfeasance. Um, when I was on the front lines of New York, I'm unfortunately known uh, globally viral as the nurse that was in the break room sobbing, saying that they were murdering my patients. The pharmaceutical companies had gone into those hospitals and decided to um, practice, I guess you can say, on, on the minorities, on the disadvantaged, on the marginalized populations that we know that we had no advocates for because the very agencies that should have been protecting them were closed because we were sheltering in place. Now, while I was there and I saw that the pharmaceutical companies were rolling out remdesivir onto the patients, I tried to get a hold of the IRBs. I tried to get a hold of my appropriate chain of command. I tried CMS. I tried Department of Health. And they rolled out remdesivir onto a substantial number of patients for which we all saw it was killing the patients. And now it's the FDA-approved drug that is continuing to kill patients in the United States. As nurses, we've co collected a statistical or descriptive amount of information that you may not get from the doctors because for more they do quantitative data, we do qualitative data with a humanistic, phenomenological approach in nursing research. And so we've collected the data from all of these patients across the country from which we have been helping patients because I formed the organization American Frontline Nurses and the Advocacy Network so nurses could advocate for these patients. And all of this data pool shows that as these patients get remdesivir, they have a less than 25% chance of survival if they get more than two doses. Now they're rolling it out on children as well and into the nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities as early intervention when as Dr. Pierre Corey and Dr. Merrick have already demonstrated that there are cost-effective medications out there and we are going to see the amplification of death across our country. And we haven't even touched on the vaccines for which all of our expert panels have already very well described that situation, so I won't touch on that since many of them are by far superior to me than, than even I could ever hope to be. But I can tell you that two days ago, I, f I flew out my first 10-year-old with a heart attack, and I had to fight the doctor in the ER because he's like, 10-year-olds don't have heart attacks. And I argued back and forth for 30 minutes to force his hand to get an EKG to find out that he was had almost a complete STEMI, which is ST-elevated myocardial inf infarction, for which you could see it lit up on the 12-lead EKG. 
And he's like, well, that's not possible. And I'm like, well, he was just vaccinated yesterday. It is very much possible. At any given time, people are getting a hold of me and the nurse advocates at American Frontline Nurses to help advocate because, as you've seen, there is victim shaming that, it do- oh, it's anxiety, oh, it's this. But in actuality, if they put down that it was a vaccine injury, the physician, the corporation, the hospital, the clinic, they actually won't get reimbursed, so it gets labeled as anxiety or neuropathy or Guillain-Barre syndrome, when in actuality, it's very realistically a vaccine injury. Now, I'm not, uh, even though I founded American Frontline Nurses, I've traveled extensively to South America, India, and South Africa, working in hot zones, stopping the spread of the virus, and working with early intervention. And nowhere in those countries, in developing nations, do I see these issues that we see here in the United States. It's actually, I'm a very proud American citizen. I come from a family of immigrants, and my mother told me that the United States is the the best country in the world, though granted I am biased being an American. And our level of healthcare has been deteriorated to substandard third world nation healthcare, whereas I tell people you are better off in South America in a field hospital than you are in level one trauma designer hospitals in the United States. As nurses, we are getting reports across the country from our American frontline nurses about patients not getting food, patients not getting water. How come a patient hasn't been fed in nine days? Why do I need to get a court order to force a hospital to feed a person who isn't intubated and who's literally telling you they would like food? Oh, well, you can't take your BiPAP mask off. Well, that's what us nurses are for. We're going to help you take that off and we're going to help you eat, but we're not allowed to. If you know if they're on a ventilator, they're not getting basic standards of care. I've had patients that haven't been bathed, haven't been fed, haven't been given water, haven't been turned. And if you ask me, this isn't a hospital, this is a concentration camp. Absolutely it is. Nowhere in the United States do we isolate people for hundreds of hours at a time with no human contact. It's not even allowed in the prisons. You are not allowed to isolate a prisoner for beyond a certain extensive amount of time because it is horrible for their mental health and is considered inhumane. However, in these hospitals now, we're allowed to isolate patients from their families for days, and you have to say goodbye to them over an iPhone, as Jennifer Bridges has just demonstrated to us, or she has to shuttle people in to see. And personally, I was fired for sneaking a Hispanic family in to say the last rites to their family. And so thank you, Senator Johnson, for giving nurses the opportunity to come and represent our patients, because as you can see, we're not often thought of as uh, leading professionals, though we are the missing link between the doctors and the patients. So thank you so much for this time. Thank you for being a nurse. Dr. Peter McCullough delivers an emotional plea on myocarditis. To get on to, uh, there are great unknowns with respect to the vaccines, uh, their mechanism of action, and uh, disease categories like cancer. Uh, but there is a disease category upon which the FDA, the CDC, and all stakeholders agree that the vaccines cause, and that's myocarditis or heart inflammation. And I will tell you, as a cardiologist, it is crystal clear that these vaccines cause myocarditis. Dr. Uh, Parks has already quoted the paper by Avolio that has shown 
beyond a shadow of a doubt the vaccines cause myocarditis. The FDA indicates for Pfizer and Moderna that they cause myocarditis. We now have over 200 papers in the peer-reviewed literature on myocarditis, sadly showing the rates of myocarditis are far in excess of what the CDC ever imagined. We've identified that boys are, uh, have a predilection for this far more than girls. The maximum age group, the peak age group is age 18 to, uh, 18 to 24, so it's actually the college age. The risk extends up to age 50, and I can tell you that in this age group, it is clear the risks of the vaccines are far greater than the risks of COVID-19, the respiratory illness. Two papers, one by Tracy Hogue at UC Davis, one by Ron Kostoff, that these papers have been presented at the FDA meetings. They have not been challenged as analyses. One, and, and there are now fatal cases of myocarditis uh, uh, published by Washington University in St. Louis, by Verma, and by Choi from South Korea. More fatal cases accrue. There is uh, the father of a boy here in this room who's died of myocarditis. One death is too many. One. One. We have 21,000 cases of myocarditis and climbing in the United States that the CDC has verified. One was too many. Under no circumstances, under any circumstances, should a young person ever receive one of these vaccines, let alone ever be pressured to receive a vaccine, let alone ever be mandated to take a vaccine. This is crystal clear. The FDA agrees. There can be no controversy over this. There can be no normalizing of this to say that it's mild or it's transitory. Well, talk, talk about that because that's what they say. It's mild. Talk. Is myocarditis mild? My, I'm telling you as a specialist, myocarditis is not mild. There are papers by Shower and by, now by Trong at University of uh, Utah at Salt Lake. When they do MRI on these individuals with suspected myocarditis, 100% are having heart damage. 100%. We have a paper by Tashopi and colleagues looking at the outcome of individuals prior to COVID in this age group with myocarditis. 13% will have permanent heart injury. 32% never actually get up to normal. They don't get back to normal. We are seeing unprecedented numbers of athletes dying on the field in Europe. Unprecedented. Of these cardiac arrests, half of them don't come back. We now have a report out of the heart group in the UK where actuarial mortality for those under age 15, mortality in the UK is higher than expected. We've been reading and reporting on these points for over a year. Of course, the deep state media has to try to combat it with their own fact check from the Wisconsin State Journal or whatever foreign country that these media companies have employed. But finally, the general public gets to hear what is really happening from real doctors. You just heard it. Now, if you can think for yourself and keep an open mind about what these doctors are saying, and please spread the truth. That's it for Vaccine War Headlines, Volume 13. It's not from us. It's from the doctors.
And that does it for another edition of Digging Deeper. Visit our website to catch this podcast and many others anytime. You can also watch our live TV network, browse our on-demand content, read our controversial articles, or sign up if you feel led to join the cause for defending our Constitution. It's all on diggingdeeper.us. We appreciate you listening, and remember, visit diggingdeeper.us to learn more about what we're doing to bring truth to light.